Welcome back, everyone. Today we are going to talk about a movie that offers a glimpse into the experience of anterograde amnesia, Christopher Nolan's Memento. This is Cinematics. I'm Ryan. And I'm Mike. So today we're discussing Christopher Nolan's 2000 film Memento. This is his second film, a follow-up to the following. Uh, it was shot in 25 days for a budget around uh, five to ten million dollars. It's a big window. Yeah. Uh, so Wikipedia had five million, and and IMDb had nine and a half. So I just kind of put oh, those two. Interesting. All right. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. Um, this is a story uh, based on a short story by Jonathan Nolan, Christopher's brother, called Memento Mori, which is a Latin phrase that means, remember that you will die. It's a phrase to remind one of one's own mortality. Uh, the short story was described orally to Christopher on a cross-United States trip. They, they were in a, a vehicle, they drove across the United States, he told him this story. By the time he got to L.A., Christopher Nolan had already kind of started writing the script out loud in his <laughs> head. Um, uh, so this is Jonathan Nolan's uh, first writing credit, although it's Christopher who wrote the screenplay. But this is Jonathan's first credit at all um, that it's based on his thing. He's uh, gone on to do many of uh, Christopher's screenplays, but it, in his own right, he's become a bit of a... Um, creator in the TV uh, world where he created Person of Interest and then later Westworld with his partner Lisa Joy. Uh, this is the first collaboration between Christopher Nolan and the cinematographer Wally Pfister that became a fruitful relationship in the 2000s. Wally did a, a lot of Christopher's uh, work, especially Dark Knight, Inception, Batman Begins, Dark Knight Rises... Uh, Wally also did the movie Moneyball, and but has now kind of moved into more directing uh, with a, a two, uh, 2014 film Transcendence starring Johnny Depp. And he's also got into TV doing episodes of Flaked on Netflix and The Tick on Amazon Prime. Uh, this was a, uh, nominated for two Oscars, um, original screenplay and film editing. And the reason it's original screenplay and not adapted screenplay is the short story his brother described to him was not yet published by the time the movie was written and, <laughs> and directed. Also, this movie stars Guy Pierce, Carrie Ann Moss, Joe Pantoliano, Stephen Tomblowski, and Mark Boone Jenner. It's uh, it was a really uh, well received movie. It made a lot of money. It made its money back and then some, uh, and it's had people talking more or less for the last twenty years. So. Ryan, what is the context of this film for you, and why are we why are we watching it this week? Well, um, it's another one of these movies that, uh, because of when I was born and when I got into really watching movies, um, it was one I came back to after its moment. Uh, I remember watching Inception, which was the first time I'd ever seen a Chris Nolan movie, and I remember loving what he was doing with the structure and the ideas of time and and perception of of reality just interrupt for one second you saw inception before you saw any of the batman films yes okay i so 
there's <laughs> Dark Knight came out when I was in high school. Yeah. And everybody, I didn't get, I didn't see it because it was one of those movies that like like my parents and I didn't often go to the movie theaters. It was something that I often had to do myself. They we didn't we just didn't do it much. Uh, or when we did, it was in town and it was like hard to catch big movies because it was a small town with a single screen, a <laughs> single theater in it. Uh, and and by the time I got an opportunity to watch it, everybody had talked it up so much that I couldn't make myself watch it. I was I was annoyed about hearing about it, and um, and so I just didn't didn't see it. Eventually, I came back and did watch it and was underwhelmed by it because of all of the expectations that had been set up. And then came back later again to it years after that and was like, okay, I gave it a hard rap the first time. So there's a whole ride to that story. <laughs> but essentially, I saw Inception first. And then and then I, I remember thinking, I really like what this guy's doing with, with story and with structure and, and, and his in, interest in time. Um, and so I started looking for other stuff and that was when I found out about this one, uh, and I gave it a watch and thought all of the same things I did about Inception, but even more so. Um, and it ended up actually inspiring some stuff I did in my own work. I, a short film I directed in, um, uh, film school, I, I, built on kind of the ideas he does with, with color grade to separate the timelines of where we're at to distinguish it um doing some of that in my own work because of having seen it him do it in this movie um but really why we're talking about it is its structure and the truly unique way that that the story is told um that creates an audience experience i have yet to find anywhere else what about you what what's your uh, what's your context for this so I think this is now the third movie we've done that fell right into that like sweet spot of uh, kind of when I just was exiting high school, going into university, and when I when I was really starting to get into film. Um, this also this film was got talked a lot about um, because the '90s, the end of the '90s, and the start of the 2000s, a bunch of movies came out with like major major twists and major uh wasn't that kind of the beginning of the Shyamalan era a little so bit? yeah so Sixth Sense was just before this but then there was also it, it or a little earlier than that was Usual Suspects which has the big who's Kaiser Soze reveal and um and there's probably even there's many more I'm forgetting but it was like there was an this was an era of like movies that were somewhat trying to deceive the audience a little bit and um so that's that's kind of how this movie was sold to me was like oh it's another movie with a cool twist but then the twist is kind of laid out at the start of the film well so uh, something i thought just to interrupt for a sec that i thought was interesting about that is, is nolan himself has said that it wasn't supposed to be about a big surprise immediate twist at the end but rather he was trying to achieve this sort of sense of slow changing of relationships where as the movie progresses, the way in which you are relating to and viewing these characters is continually changing and that that leads you to this sort of surprise ending, but that all along you're continually being kind of surprised and your perspective changed. 
Well, and this movie also, um, I've forgotten the name of the effect of it, but there, there is, um, there is an effect in which, uh, you as a, either reader of a story or a watcher of a story, um, will instantly side with the protagonist and take their word for you in the, oh, yeah, in the yeah. same way, uh, like the unreliable narrator, but the, the, like that, that's because that became a trope because people believe the narrator that's what you do in a book that, that and, the point you're, you're following their perspective you assume you're meant to believe them. and so this movie um was one of the first movies that kind of played with that that we all watched and we were like whoa okay and that kind of opened our eyes to some storytelling devices that we would soon be learning about in university and stuff and um so that's kind of the overall context of like of the time when i first saw this film and and that kind of thing um but yeah this movie uh, when i watched it this time um and i haven't seen it in a good 12 to 15 years when i watched it this time i will say this is the least i've liked it really and i don't know why that is if it just feels uh, too dated or maybe I saw it too much because I watched it a lot in the early, like when it first came out I watched it quite a few times because I it did blow me away but it it uh, this time when I watched it it felt it started to feel what I've started to feel with more recent Christopher Nolan stuff is it I started to feel this style more than the substance a little bit this one this one it's a the levels are a little bit more balanced between style and substance but it i would say that if this movie didn't have the really creative narrative uh the the broken narrative structure i would i don't know that this movie would be a movie that i would be wanting to do on this podcast i I know we've said to each other off camera just in our our daily lives about the uh chris nolan's progression of storytelling and and how he he seems to become um uh, at least i know that i've said before somewhere that like this movie seemed to be this jumping off point where he came up with this great idea for a way to tell a story in a different way that led to a career of making movies that were about telling stories in unique and interesting ways without necessarily always being about the story that they're telling more so even though i sure he would argue that yeah Um, so for him i think that with christopher nolan he has an obsession with perception and how we perceive the world and how we perceive ourselves and how the world perceives us and it that has been kind of an ongoing discussion in all of his films and this but this movie um what maze makes the style equal to the substance a little bit or more equal to the substance in this to me is that the style is all created in order to place you into the mind of the protagonist and so it's all designed to give you um the most full picture in a weird way of what this character is going through even though it's giving you kind of snippets and segments and that kind of thing it is giving you um, as we we talked about, Christopher Nolan said that uh, 
uh, well, we can get into this when we get into the story structure. We'll get into that. Yeah, yeah. But but more or less that it's giving you a, a to me, it's giving you a more rounded version because you are getting a bit of what what's going inside his head through the narration and that kind of thing. You are getting a little bit to see how the world perceives him by his interactions with other people, and you're kind of getting a. I think a somewhat well-rounded view of who this character is enough that you can form some decisions about, about him and, and his experience by the end of the film. Yeah. 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 I agree. And I think that there's going to be a lot to talk about with both of those things when we get to that section. Uh, before we do, uh, as always, I think we should talk a little bit about the cinematography and, and the cine in general, the, the craft of the movie. Um, and I mean, I did, I didn't want to spend too long on this part just because um there that's not what we're watching this movie for but i did one thing that stood out to me quite strongly was how stunning the black and white images were i i felt um more so than the color the the color segments the the actual lighting the contrast the the starkness of them. Uh, and, and I mean, it's going for that sort of neo-noir look that this movie kind of is genreing itself as. Um, but I, I, that those segments stood out to me as far as um, cinematography, the pieces that I thought looked best. Yeah. They, they looked, the contrast in them was pretty beautiful and it, they were well shot. I think the, the whole, like the whole watching it now, and I would have never had this opinion when I like didn't work in film prior to working in film, uh, when I watched this originally when it came out, but watching it now, I can very much tell there was a limited budget on this movie. And the way I can tell is there's very, very few wide shots. Um, most, most of this movie plays in medium close (laughs) kind of thing. Yeah. You know, that's a good point. I never really thought about that. Or if I did, I was thinking about it as like, it's a perspective thing. And I, and I think it plays to that, but I think it's also one of those happy accidents that when you don't have money, you don't have control over the environment. If you're shooting, if you're not shooting on a set. So how do you control your environment? Well, you make that environment smaller to where you can control it. So you stay within a medium, medium wide, maybe, but, uh, yeah. Then you don't have to worry about background issues and, and all that jazz and cars going through frame and things. Yeah. Like to the point that I almost, I, I don't know that from outside of the portico front entrance to the hotel or the motel, I don't know that I could describe to you how that motel necessarily looks. You know, I watched it three times in the last three days. And I'm now trying to recall and and having a little bit of a hard time. And I think that that's probably why that is. You know, you like, get that one shot of like yeah. the op- the little drive through area, like you were saying or whatever. But like you don't you don't see a lot of. And I know area. that it's multi floor because there's a uh, rep. Well, we see stairs and stuff like that. So I know that there's multi floor and it's accessed from like exterior like elements to walking. Your your room is to the elements. And so there's no like hallways and that kind of thing, like a hotel. Um, but I, it could be three stories. It could be two stories. It could be five stories, I guess, or four stories. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I, I think it's I, a motel that's two. It's they're but, usually two floors. But it, I mean, there might be a third floor. I like I true, have no true. idea. And yeah, the yeah. other thing is, I don't know. And, and the reason I'm saying all this is because it's it's like a major set piece and a major place where 
I would say, you know, somewhere around 60% of this film takes place in and around that motel. So the fact that I can't describe it really well, having watched this movie twice in the last few days, um, I yeah, was just my tip off. It, it's of, interesting yeah. of that this is a lower budget movie. However, I'm not. That's not a knock on the cinematography. I think, um, but I do feel like more than the films they would go on to do together. I think the next one they do is the Prestige. I'm not positive about that. Oh, maybe Insomnia before that. Um, probably insomnia. Um, but either way, those movies start to get into really controlled light, really like Wally Pfister does use a bit of nat, nat, like a natural look, but he really controls his light sources. I find watching his stuff. And this is a little bit more, this is a little sloppier and a little mm-hmm. bit more like running gun. You were saying it was his first big feature as a DP. Right? Yeah. He had done a, I mean, he had done some other stuff. But as far as I know, this was like when he got promoted from cam op to DP, like career-wise, when he took the full step from cam op to DP and kind of never went back. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. The DP he had been working for was offered this movie and the DP read the script and didn't understand it. And apparently, I think the story, as the story goes, he gave it to Wally. Wally read it, also didn't really understand it, but thought it was smart. Um, probably because he didn't understand it. So we have that, that thing we do where we're like, oh, it must be really intelligent, this thing. Oh, I don't get it. So therefore, it yeah, must be. Yeah, yeah. But anyways, and so just kind of someone, someone else turning down the opportunity. Uh, and Wally Pfister was a guy who knew his craft and was ready for this opportunity. And it's kind of, it. it was really kind of a happenstance thing, it seems like. But these two really creative film minds got together and then the rest is history yeah there you go um i i do want to clarify i guess uh both of the uh this is a smart movie comment and also the the earlier comment about uh about style over substance because i am as much as as i think that's true i do i think that a lot of the things that nolan thinks about and a lot of the things that he he makes movies about are things that I find really fascinating and I find myself sometimes obsessing over. So I think I'm a little bit more uh, susceptible to enjoying the movies and being less critical of them necessarily than some people. Cause I know he, he has a lot of mixed uh, fan base, people who really love his stuff and people who, who don't ever watch his movies anymore, I think. But um, yeah, I, I will say I, I was definitely a fan, um, through his early work right up until Dark Knight and then post Dark Knight. I mean, well, I guess, um, I did like Inception a bit, uh, um, just it, a bit. Oh man. I mean, I, I, like it, it blew me away when I watched it, uh, the first time in theaters, but that, but then when I went back and revisited, it didn't blow me away at all when I watched it like on, on uh, DVD at home. And so that makes me think that I didn't, that I liked the style over the substance is what what that makes me think. But I do like, I do like that his movies are meditations on these big ideas and these big themes and that everything from generally the narrative right down to the individual acting choices are all to this greater idea and what I've proposed earlier is like perception is kind of his overarching theme. Uh, yeah. So in this movie, it's, it's, it's memory 
and well i guess it is an inception as well <laughs> but that, I, and i think that is really interesting because i too like i've been semi-obsessed with how memories shape who we are and then why certain memories are what shape us and why other memories get discarded and how our subconscious makes those decisions to what hold what to hold precious and what to discard as as uninformed or useless or whatever and uh and how photography to this the move the point of this movie plays into it um growing up my dad and mom but my dad more so documented my brother and i's life a lot through the lens of a camera uh there's a lot of pictures of me and my brother not as much video but there's a lot of video as well and i often think about how much of my childhood memory is based on what was captured and the events and that wasn't and what wasn't but i mean again the times in my life in which a camera would be my dad would be out taking pictures of me and my brother was also times of great events great like big moments trips family reunions things like that and so there those are like big shaping moments anyway so it's I, I guess the reason I say that is because something that this movie, for me, with as far as like the perception and with photography goes, and with what you're saying, I just found it interesting that like you can take a photo of something to to remind yourself and to prove. But this movie also shows that just taking a picture of something uh, strips it of context, insofar as what it is. You're like you know you, you to to get right to the end of it right away. There, he, there's the photo of of him pointing at his had his bare spot in his chest after he's done the deed and and he he sees that and and there's some recognition there but like the context of what's there is gone so he still doesn't really know what it's a photo of yeah i i agree that he doesn't except i think that he does deep down yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a part of him that I, recognizes even if he consciously does. Yeah, we can get into it, but I think yeah. Guy Pierce does a very good job of making his character notice like things about himself. So, uh well, he he says it in interviews and stuff that I've seen, but um on the back of the picture of uh Natalie Carrion Moss's character, Teddy uh Joey Pants there gets him to uh <laughs> <laughs> gets him to uh write uh don't trust her or whatever uh, yeah, yeah something to that yeah, effect yeah. and he writes that in uh, writes it in the back but he writes it in somewhat cursive not in a handwriting that and, he recognizes and guy Ritchie or guy Ritchie, guy pierce i, I might have said guy Ritchie before no you, you said okay, guy pierce thank god uh so guy pierce um made that choice because in the moment his character doesn't trust teddy telling him that information so he writes it in cursive in order to give future him distrust distrust in that message yeah and um and so if he's aware that the future version of him when he has another lapse of memory will see that understand that there's something wrong everything else is block letters this is cursive why did I do that? It is my handwriting, but it like it's a slight distress call. I feel like he would have understood then if he's capable of if he's capable of realizing he's capable of understanding that, then he's also then I think in the moment he sees that picture he's also capable of 
understanding. I follow that logic. Um, on the on the topic of acting, before we we get into the more detailed stuff, I did want to touch on a couple of things. Um, I thought overall the performances in this movie are really good, uh, but there were two key ones that I really wanted to to talk about a bit, which is first of all the the scene where where Carrie Ann Moss' character Natalie is just exploding on uh, Guy Pierce's character Leonard. Uh, is just a, a fantastic moment of performance in my mind. It's it's it it was it sold that whole scene really well as this very like uh, unsettling and and I felt like you could really tell in that moment that she was she was performing while like she was performing that she was performing and it was a layer of depth that I thought was really well executed. Yeah, um, her character's story arc is very interesting and. I guess it is kind of incidental to the whole story a little bit, just insofar as uh, she's just another person that is slightly taking advantage of... She's almost a MacGuffin in a yeah, way. Yeah, she is. And and uh, I, you're right. That's a good a good way to describe her character. But yeah, that the... Or a red herring, perhaps, is a more appropriate that film noir term. would be the... Yeah. And but she, I mean, we see that performance, and then when we get the setup scene that follows it, uh, and we see her take that moment in the car, like getting her ready, almost like an and actor staring him down too, like just, yeah. Oh, it was so creepy. I, uh, but very effective and yeah, very yeah. good. And um, this, I mean, there's two big movie, uh, two of the big supporting actors in this movie. Um, we're both in the matrix as well. Yep. Yep. And, yep. uh, I guess the casting director saw Carrie Ann Moss in the matrix recommended her to Christopher Nolan for this movie. And then he said she brought a ton that wasn't on the page. Oh, and, wow. and I think it's moments like that. I think it's, I think it was in those, in those scenes that she really, really delivered. Because One of the it, most that whole scene, but like the shot from the window of you know Leonard's perspective, looking at her, looking at him from the car, they both know what's about to happen, and he's desperately trying to stop it, and she knows there's nothing. Yeah, it's just so well done. And I mean, but she also, when you ask, when you talk to people about this movie, she's a major character people bring up, and she's in three scenes, four maybe, four. She's in the scene where she uh, is throwing trash out and he arrives in the Jaguar. She's in the bar with him and spits in the beer. Uh, she has the whole scene where she's like, you can stay here or whatever. And then she has the scene where they're in bed together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, I'm pretty sure, it. And that, like... I think that's more or less, and yet she's made such a huge that, impression on the film. That's my yeah. point. Like, and uh, this, I mean, this movie when I heard it was shot in twenty-five days made sense, but that's still a quick time to shoot a, a movie, especially a major feature. Yeah. Um, and her part was done in eight days, I believe, and that also makes sense. That's actually a significant portion of the shooting days for the amount of screen time. I mean, there's a lot of screen time. There's a lot of screen time. Those are big scenes. And you, the, the scene that we're just discussing, that's like a four parter, right? There's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It gets broken up, but, um, yeah. So, uh, very interesting. And the, yeah, the performances I think, uh, would be, it's a lesson to any young filmmaker to not, while these are all famous in quotations, actors, they weren't all massive actors at the time this movie came out. 
And Guy Pierce had just started breaking into North American movies. He had done L.A. Confidential, I think, just before this. I think so, yeah. And then, and then, yeah, and then did this. But yeah, t- getting getting actors who can act the shit out of your screenplay. Well, so he was the next one I wanted to talk about, and obviously he's the lead. He has he's every, in every scene except one, I think. Um, but uh, something that I really noticed in even my first watch of the movie uh is that and and it 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 ties into this the uh, the theme of memories and the idea that memories kind of make who we are um and and then natalie calls him out on it in that fight scene when she says can you even be scared and he's like no but can you be or however the line goes but his whole his whole character is built on what he knows is the is this major uh event in his traumatic event in his past and whatever he was before that and this loss of memory this forgetting of who he is makes him um kind of give takes away some of his personality and leaves him with only one personality which is the guy trying to find the person who killed his wife and and i think that guy pierce plays that really really well in that he's extremely flat most of the time he's not very emotional he's kind of quiet his voice is is a little more monotone he's always fairly toned down except when he's angry or when he's um in in strife essentially well even the part where he's chasing the drug dealer and which by the way i laughed my ass yeah several times it is a very like there are a few kind of funny moments built by the editing and that was one of them but that he joins the he's so the scene opens and he's running and then he says why why am i running oh i'm chasing this guy and then he cuts over to chase that guy and he goes oh no he's chasing me and he turns it's around monotone it's flat it's yeah. like pensive uh, and thoughtful but it it is monotone and flat and his face isn't that expressive but it's all of because of what we're talking about like if you don't have if you don't know what you're scared of, how, how, or if you can't remember fear, more or less, how can yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, and that, that's how if memories are how we create all of our instinctual reactions to things. It's how we uh, uh, interact with the world around us and deter- our, our brain decides how we should respond to things and how we should feel and behave based on previous experiences. Which is also very much the like somewhat the theme of of what his character is trying to do in this thing because starting with that test with the uh that um with the electric Electric, yeah the electric test for for um i've just slipped on his name sammy jankis sammy jankis they say it like 18 times yeah yeah how could you forget that i don't know (laughs) i i do remember ned ryerson though which is this uh uh that's uh sorry steven toblowski the character who plays sammy jenkins in another oh. in another movie that deals with time in an interesting way, Groundhog Day plays a character oh, called God. Ned Ryerson, uh, who wa- like walks and steps in a puddle every time, and he says his name a thousand times, and in, in somewhat in the same fashion of the similar characters in a way, um, not really, but similar. <laughs> <laughs> Roger that. <laughs> um, so with Sammy Jenkins getting uh, when they show him getting the electric shock therapy, trying to build the instinct into him if he can't build the memory build that instinct into him and then it's what guy pierce's character um lenny keeps the rest of the movie keeps that's what he's done he's he's 
it's why that he can't be satisfied once he's found the bad guy and killed him because he instinctually has bred this like thirst for the killer into himself. His habit is wake up, check the drawer, check the things, do the stuff, go out, try and find the murderer. Yeah. So, so he can't, he can't not have that. And that's going to be part, like he's going to feel that longing to be doing that because he like worked so hard. That's why he repeats these stories to himself. It's why it's he... also like, I think partially the the fact that his last memory is his wife on the floor and him like looking at her <clears throat> dead body. Yeah. Um, that even if he knew and, and okay. So I don't want to derail that. So finish your thought, but I wanted to go on to the short story for a minute before we get... Okay, but it, but it is just to say that what you were saying is almost exactly right. Like, he, he his character was trying to build in instinct, build in fear, build in all of those things that we have through our memory. Um, and it seems as if what he remembered of it of the past, because he can remember everything up to a certain point, that then becomes this like there's a there's a um, a boundary between him and that area kind of thing. So he has memory of it, but it doesn't feel it almost feels like a movie or like uh, doesn't feel real to him anymore. At least this is how I perceived it. And then and so that's why he like um, to remember emotions isn't to feel them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that anyways so that that all plays to that whole like like what you're what you were saying there with the instinct of it i guess it was a well-crafted performance that uh looking at it without context could be argued to be a bad performance because it feels flat and emotionless but it's crafted for a purpose and is is to serve the purpose of the story and it it works very very well in my mind well even when he's first describing um uh, St- uh, Tobla- uh, Stephen Tobolowski's character and he says like oh I recognized that he recognized me a little bit every time I came to the door and then he goes now I realize you just do that because you, you just fake it because he's now in the situation and so he um, that that little bit of blank stare and then we get little flashes and moments and you're right in his acting performance if you don't understand the story i feel could feel misplaced or weird or whatever but they don't feel plastic and and cardboardy and also i do want to mention since we're talking about acting that uh steven toblowski and mark boone uh, jr who is the uh the receptionist at the the hotel um both of them play their roles really really well yes uh especially especially steven toblowski i I really i've always liked him as a character actor i've always found him really interesting um and in this movie he has that weird kind of expression expressionless uh innocence kind of he's always like slightly shocked by everything around him but in in a naive innocent childlike kind of way yeah and and it's just and you just want to be on his side as the protagonist keeps telling you this story about him that's getting interrupted by the narrative and um anyways i just he he felt like the perfect representation of that story and uh and i just really liked his performance a lot yeah it was very good um so as I've said before, I think the biggest conversation in this show is going to be about the structure of this movie. 
But I did want to talk a bit about uh, about the short story before we get into the movie, um, only because I found it really interesting. Now, you, you said you hadn't read it, right? No, I did not. Okay, cool. Um, so... Like we like we said, they they kind of they were being written in conjunction, um, and I believe the st- short story was published after the movie was released, um, and I found the place that it was originally published and took a read through it, and it is well. First of all, it's extremely well crafted. It's a really really good read if you are looking for something to read, but it's. It's a lot darker feeling than this movie is, and it leans a lot more into the idea of the 10-minute cycle. This movie is a little bit fluctuating on that, and we can kind of talk about that, but the the, the, the idea in the script and the, and the short is that it's about a 10-minute cycle before he forgets everything. Um, and in in the story, it's still about, like, the, the main character has... Uh, his wife, I believe, has still been murdered. And it's about him coming to the idea that he needs to go and do something about this. And so it starts It starts off with him in a hospital room, essentially. And it really, it's really subjective. It's written with a lot of I's and U's. A lot of U's from, like, letters written to him in, in like, second person. That's, that makes it feel really subjective. Um, but it really leads, leans in on the idea of every 10 minutes, this man gets up and sees an image of his, him over his wife's grave. And every 10 minutes he has to mourn her and then move on and then figure out what he's doing with his life and try and make as much progress as he can, because 10 minutes later, he's going to open his eyes and forget it all and start the process over again and have to remember every 10 minutes that his wife is dead and then he's got a, and it's like he, he has a schedule and it, it was really, it was felt really depressing to read, but it was a really good, uh, it was a, it felt like a really good companion piece because you, you get, uh, the sense of that cycle more specifically. See, and I could see that being, because we don't between the time of the accident and in the 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 bathroom incident we'll call it um and and when and the start of the narrative for the film which is the black and white when he picks up the phone for the first time in the film um we don't know how much time's passed that's a yeah that's it's lost to us and because and everyone and everyone um but I could see that being how his life went for the first little while after his wife was dead, and then and all and all the realizations that come along with it. But I could see how having done that every ten minutes or whatever, and having to mourn his wife every ten minutes, then f- slowly forgetting and then remembering again and mourning again. I could see how he would drive it would drive him insane, and it would drive him into this like thirst to find the person who did this to his wife like he's literally living a 10 minute cycle for the rest of his life of grieving for someone that he loved but as though for the first time yes uh but i would argue to the point that he's almost he's now he's now grieving for the idea of what that was like yeah he's grieving for the idea of the life that was lost as much as he's grieving for her but 
I think it's just it's um it's that thing we, with memory we all kind of do like if anybody's gone was in like a long-term relationship and then got out of said relationship at least in my uh, this is obviously subjective but a few years down the road i find that most of the the bad things a part of the relationship uh have somewhat like washed away and i mean I'm, if there were serious things like abuse and stuff i'm sure that would all stay but if, front and center but, but if it was a fairly healthy relationship then you most, remember the good you remember the good and most of the bad washes away and that's why i think people get back into relationships with exes and stuff so often is because you you naturally forget those bad times and you you press those away and you put them away and you remember the good times and the laughter and all that stuff and then you're like, oh, it wasn't so bad dating that person. And then you get back in and then <laughs> yeah. you're like, oh, man. Oh, wait, there was a reason. We and now I that. remember why this all didn't end well. Um, and I, I so because there's um, when I was doing some of the research and some of the reviews and stuff for this, some of the people made the astute point that I didn't pick up for. Uh, I picked up more recently when I watched it, but I didn't pick up initially when I watched it um, back in the early 2000s. But the the only they show i think one or two scenes with him and his wife when she's like alive and functional and one of the scenes is him coming home from work and her in bed reading that book that has the top uh, cover warrant torn off of it and it, it's like a, a fairly combative interaction yeah to the point she's like i'm not reading this to annoy you i'm i'm reading it because i enjoy the book like it has nothing alone and let me read. like it has nothing to do with you but like that's clearly that's the end of an argument that they've been having for months if not years or whatever and something he can't seem to get around is how she can keep revisiting a story and finding pleasure in it and all this stuff. Which ironically is what becomes yeah, exactly. his whole life. Yeah, exactly. And so all of that is, yeah. And I, and so I'm, what I'm saying is like, I'm sure he loved her and I'm sure all of that's, that is the case. But it, it and when we find out, uh, when we find out his wife didn't die from the bathroom incident, but then died later on down the road when she was testing his memory issues um, in the same like yeah i have some questions about that sort of stuff that we'll get to i think okay um but 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 i guess my point is that like the incident in the bathroom and the 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 rape of his wife or the assault of his wife is like what seems to be the trigger for everything and i guess you could you could make a argument that like a possessive possessive like dickhead boyfriend would make it all about that and not the other side like yeah, yeah, I could, I could see that. I don't know. I like, I'm not. I don't so- occupy that mind space, so I don't know how those kind of people think. But I feel like, that- like, but I feel like, like, it seems like that the incident he's focusing on is is about her, but it's as much about what was it's taken about from him, him yeah. as it is it's about selfish what's taken- as much as yeah. That's all. That's the point I was trying to get at. I wasn't phrasing it well, but yeah. that uh, it, but it, but it is. It seem it seems like a quite selfish sort of sort of act of of him seeking out something and that this this cycle of of needing to get revenge becomes more about him getting a a sense of purpose and him getting some sort of sense of of like grieving for the thing that he has lost um which i guess arguably everybody kind of does things selfishly for subcon- subconsciously, I mean, I, I'm a cynic, and and I would argue that 
even people doing things for good reasons, the purest of reasons, are doing it because they enjoy the feeling they get when they do it, which is still a selfish act. It just so happens that we've created, we have this system in which those selfish acts make us feel good. There's literally centuries of philosophy based on on yeah. these stuff. <laughs> and we will never get through that in yeah. this show. Yeah. Um, so I think we should get on to the, uh, the main discussion, which is structure. Uh, but I think in order to do that, we have to kind of lay out the movie a little bit. Okay. Um, there is a cut that was uh, edited in chronological order, which I have not watched. I tried to track it down, was having a really hard time doing that until this morning when I didn't have time to watch it anymore. I finally found it. But um, And it's probably not a legal version of it either. It's just on YouTube somewhere. Um, but I think for the benefit of of how we talk about further, the chronological order of the story would be as follows. Uh, the bathroom incident happens. Um, there, uh, well, I guess even before that, there's the um, there's Leonard working as a uh, insurance in- inspector, and he inspects and in- investigates uh, this case with Sammy, uh, which we are led to believe at first is see the bathroom incident to me then is the first part of the timeline because what we find out later is that incident never happened well uh the see so there there's an interest because the impression i found with that final conversation is that sammy is a real person that he investigated he has those memories he knows that that was a thing but that sammy himself was actually a faker sammy did the real sammy didn't have a wife the real sammy was faking memory loss for insurance money and uh, Leonard takes that story and juxtaposes his own on it to create one narrative. I, I didn't read that, but uh, because, I mean, because that, that's what, that's what Teddy tells him at the end. He's, he specifically says Sammy was a faker, which he, he didn't say Sammy wasn't real. He said, Sammy was a faker. Sammy didn't have a wife. You had the wife with insulin with, with diabetes. Oh, okay. So I I missed that. Sammy was real, but Sammy was only relevant in that it gave a structure with which he could transpose his own narrative onto. Right. Um, So then he has the accident. He um, goes through whatever he's doing to go through there. And eventually um, he finds his way to the police officer, John Gamel, who takes pity on him and believes his story that there was a second person in the bathroom when his wife was assaulted and uh, injured, but not killed. Somewhere in that range, um, we don't know when, he, his, him and his wife have marital problems, um, and she ends up testing him with the insulin trick, and, and he, gives her, he overdoses her because he can't remember, and she dies. Um, John Gamble helps him find the man who did the incident. They kill him, um, and then... Uh, he doesn't get the, the satisfaction, I guess, from it because he forgets. And then John's like, okay, well, I'm going to continue to help you feel like your life has purpose and importance. And at the same time, we're going to kill bad guys and make some money on the side. And so they spend what becomes told to be a year doing this. And in some unnamed town somewhere in, I think, California, a year after the death of the main character our story takes place well so the first the first thing that happens in the film is he wakes up in the hotel room in black and white 
that chronologically, the first thing that should happen in the film is he wakes up in the hotel room in black and white, says, what am I doing here? Looks down at his thigh. There's the message on there that says shave, I believe. Yeah, shave, shave. And then, thigh. and then, so, and then. He gets called and by then Teddy. He gets, uh, gets a call that we then, le- we later learn is from Teddy, but he picks up the phone. We never hear Teddy's side of that conversation, but he does what he always does, which is tell his story tell the story of sammy jenkins sammy jenkins and all of that every, everything and goes all uh, like and does his usual spiel right up till when he sees his own note that says never pick up the phone he slams down the phone teddy who has been with him for a while knows that oh well we need to i need to do the thing where i slide the thing under the door so he slides Show a, note, a photo s- slides a photo and some information under the door he receives that, and he's paranoid. But uh, like to me, that's like that's the that's kind of the chronological beginning. Yeah. yeah, and then and then after that, they go out to he goes out to meet him in the lobby. Pretty much when he walks out of there, he's on his way to meet Carrie Ann Moss's boyfriend. Yeah, because because that conversation of the Sammy Jenkins story happens, and then Gamble on the phone, which we don't hear tells him about this drug dealer and how this drug dealer is the guy and they need to go meet him and kill him. So he goes down to the lobby to meet the officer. They go out. He sends him on his way with the info. Uh, Leonard goes to this place, kills the drug dealer, Jimmy Gantz, I believe his last name was. Um, And then Teddy shows up and the reveal happens whereby he realizes that he's being used Teddy explains to him what they've been doing for a year, and then uh, Leonard decides that he is going to force himself to forget what he just learned rather than remember and direct himself to Teddy as his next target so that he can get revenge, I guess, and also break this cycle in a way that is more permanent, perhaps, potentially. Yeah, There's arguments about why and and what that we can get into because I wanted to talk to you about that. but he does that. He goes away um, and then follows uh, like the coaster in his pocket to a bar where he meets Natalie, who sees him in her boyfriend's truck and or Jaguar and clothes. And this incites her part of the story, whereby she uses him to protect herself from Dodd, who's the uh, associate that Jimmy Gantz talks about, who's coming to kill him for the yeah, and does that. Teddy gets in touch with them and is essentially being like you're in danger and you need to leave and doesn't listen at all he leonard's not listening because he doesn't yeah. trust him so so he doesn't trust him he's told him to get rid of the car get rid of the clothes because they're not his but he also doesn't come out and say they're not yours yeah he just or says, that he does and then he holds up the picture that says my car and he's like oh trying to be funny today or whatever yeah yeah that takes us to well, it takes us to him uh, beating up Dodd in the hotel. Uh, so he run, he gets chased by Dodd, and then he run, uh, runs through the little RV park. And then he goes, oh, I'll go back to Dodd's hotel room and hide out and wait for him to come back. He goes, sits on the toilet, picks up the bottle of booze, then forgets, goes, why, he's there. forgets why he's there, has, has a, a shower, shower. <laughs> which is hilarious. Uh, and then here's Dodd come in and then attacks Dodd, puts him in the closet, then Teddy shows up again because he calls him to help. Yeah. They, he helps get rid of him. And then as they're driving away, or as they go away from that, Teddy's still trying to convince him to leave. But he still won't leave. 
Well, no, but by then, Carrie Ann Moss has given him that information at breakfast. Yes, that's right. So then, so now he has the information that matches the tattoo that he's put on his thigh. In the movie, we see him tattoo um, Teddy's uh, license plate number onto his own thigh. And then Carrie Ann Moss gives him the information that matches up to Teddy. And then he, there's the reveal that it's his name is John uh, Gamble, and um, which he we don't we find out later to the narrative structure. We find out later that he's already told him he's like I'm a John G, um, but yeah. he's he's now putting it all together in the hotel room. He then goes out to that place where he killed the Carrie Ann Moss's boyfriend, yeah, yeah. Jimmy Gantz. Jimmy Gantz. And then sees his old truck there, sees the bullets in the truck. Sees a photo of... um, The burnt photo. The burnt photo, which sort of confuses him. And then the note he left himself on his photo, on the photo of Teddy, which is, you know, he's the one kill him. And then turns around and pops Teddy. Yeah. But we never see... And that's the very beginning, uh, which now to get into that, the opening shot where it's that, first of all, done in reverse... um, of the photo fading in. photographically done in reverse yes uh the sounds are played for uh the pic pi- the sound of the picture comes at the start even though the picture is fully developed yeah and then, so the sounds play in chronological order while the image itself plays in reverse which is a strange experience when you when you watch it but it sets you up very perfectly for exactly what this movie is going to be which is the whole story we just sort of tried to break down told in reverse um and and leaves you with very many questions so as far as as far as structure goes um no- nolan talks about how the whole point in his mind of doing it backwards like this is he's trying to encourage in the audience the same sense of of uh lostness or lack of memory that our main character is experiencing so that every time you come into a scene you don't know what has happened before, but you know what you've already done, which is the line that we're given by the the um, uh, what do you, the concierge, I guess, at the hotel. He says it's so strange. You you don't know what what you, or you don't know what you've done, but you know what you're planning on doing. Yeah, yeah. And in the same way, it puts us into this headspace of of we meet these characters and you don't know if he's seen them before, and every time we go back, we get a new piece of information that in the next flashback is revealed and expanded upon in a really, in a really interesting way um, at, that I, I thought was really effective. Now you, you said that you didn't like it as much on this watch. Uh, I, I just, the story itself is what I liked. I like I still not like the narrative structure and I still like all of that. It's just the story. I, 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 I guess when I first watched this, and it might be just the effect of having seen it and knowing what's coming and all that, and like you can't watch things with new eyes and all that thing, because it's it's literally since I saw this last, it's been fifteen years probably. Oh wow! It's not something I regularly revisit or yeah. haven't. But I but I have seen this movie, including these two times I just watched it. I have seen this movie upwards of ten to fifteen times probably in my life. Uh, but most of that was between the year 2001 and 2006 or so, probably. Um, I watched it because it was also one of those ones that you would, there was no streaming services. Right. So you, people had copies of it and in university where they were shared around on, on the, the local network and, uh, <laughs> 
Uh, and then, you know, and so I partly watched it a bunch of times because you would just, every time you showed it to someone new, you'd be like, you got to watch this. And you'd sit down and you'd watch it with them. Uh, so what you were saying, so, um, Nolan describes, uh, the black and white being cinematic and based on it being cinematic, it's subjective because you are, you're the camera in the room and you're looking at what's happening. You're, but you're not actively playing in there. In the same way that the voiceover as well is meant to feel but subjective. The, or no, that feels objective. Yeah. So the color bits that play in reverse chronological order are, obje- are the objective experience of the character. And that's why those are more confusing. Uh, whereas the subjective experience of the character is in order and less confusing. Um, but it's also equally confusing because we don't have... The, we're, we're a little f- more standoffish. We're a little further back in the room. We can't hear the other side of the phone call. We don't understand what he's thinking. All of that. Um, but th- those are the usual, usual difficulties of any movie or yeah, any yes. presentation yeah, yeah. of a film. Uh, whereas the other one, you have the voiceover. You're in a lot closer. You're hearing both sides of most, most, most conversations. Um, so it all worked well. I, I think contextually, it's really interesting that without the, to start the scene, uh, to start a scene in kind of, they generally start kind of boring. Like he's generally sitting somewhere with the exception of a few of them where he's running. Or, yeah. Yeah. But they're usually him waking up or him yeah. finding himself in a room somewhere. And then, and then and you've got to be able to tie and they end kind of exciting usually and it then it has but then that ending is the boring start of the next scene which is a weird balance yeah and uh, well well pulled off and yeah and so because uh memory uh, uh provides so much context for everything we interact with in life um by taking away all what has come before that for the viewer and not giving them the context you can see how this is placing someone in the mind of someone who has anterograde amnesia which specifically it we should i suppose mention although the movie makes that very clear it's not uh amnesia as most people think of it which is just loss of memory but rather the ability to the the loss of ability to create new memories which is called anterograde amnesia there's a uh kind of amusing uh um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine episode in which a character gets interrograde amnesia and when he's trying to explain it to someone, the guy goes, oh, like Memento. And everyone's like, what? Like they haven't seen the movie? <laughs> yeah. And then someone goes, oh, like Dory uh, from... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. From Finding from, uh, Nemo. Finding Nemo yeah. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, yeah, Dory. <laughs> and they all get that reference, but nobody gets... But nobody's seen Memento for something. Yeah. And it. Uh, anyways, it just amuses me. But yeah, and I, 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 at least for myself, I found that it was a really, really effective illusion. Um, and like, like when when trying new, new and experimental methods of storytelling, it's always a gamble in the sense that like it might not work. You know, the audience might not experience what you're trying to make them experience, and it it seems like it's meant to put you very specifically in a character's head, whereas a lot more movies feel like they're trying to get you experience like the general thoughts and feelings and ideas watching this story. But yeah, but this one is specifically trying to make you experience the life uh, and uh, how it is to go around with this kind of, of 
I guess, disability. When you watched this the first time, can you remember, like, when did you clue into the narrative, like, how the narrative was structured? So I I figured it out pretty quickly that it wasn't going in the right order. I, I think it was... I think it was like the second or third color segment, probably, if I remember where, like, y- you pick up pretty quickly that things are going backwards, I found. Yeah, um, because the, at the start, they do a big, they do fairly big overlaps to yes, really, they to, do. to try to like wave at you and go, oh, look, this is, see what we've done? And I, same thing. I feel like from my memory, by the time we get the second, um, the uh, maybe, yeah you might be right it might have been the third color scene but so he shoots teddy and we see him clean up a little bit and that kind of thing and then exit and then the next thing we get is him discovering like him there uh waiting for teddy to arrive and looking through sees the picture says he's the one kill him kills him and then the next one is him pulling up there i believe yeah and we get the explanation for the for the uh, or the location, I guess, anyways, and why they're why they're there. Yeah, and and so and and then when he pops up alive and smiley together, you're like, oh, that's why. Because they do kind of try to hide what he looks like, Ted, what Teddy looks yeah. like a little bit when he's getting shot. But like, there's the glasses. You can see the like the cop cut of like what it looks. No, like. but it also it becomes super obvious. Like it's not obvious the very first time we see it, but the next, the very next time we're presented with that information, it's very obvious yeah. who who the character is, and um, and so I figured it out very early. But again, watching some people on YouTube react to this movie, and some of them do those live reactions yeah, where they yeah. watch it and you watch them react to it. It really seemed to it like it was like thirty minutes in that it felt like some of these people were like, "Oh, I see. It's this and this and this," and like never under quite understood. And well, maybe it was. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I think some something of that has to do uh, with with the way that it's structured, which is that you've got two narratives, and I mean, there's that famous interview and the way it's been described since of like the sort of u-shaped chronology where the end and the beginning yeah. are both at the beginning and the middles and you he know, keeps calling end. it a hairpin but yeah a hairpin, yeah, yeah, that, yeah that's inappropriate it's a you know the type of turn yeah, yeah. on the road um and and i think the way that the the pacing of it uh helps disguise it a little bit almost it feels to me because you have longer segments uh, that are they overlap more, but also there's more of a gap between the the like later part and the earlier part that are stitched together of the of the color sequences. There's more space between them for you to sort of lose a couple of details about what happened in the future, so that when you get back to that, it's sort it you're thinking about other and then there's longer sections of or not longer sections of black, but there's sections of black and white more consistently throughout. So you're given more space to be away from the the truth of it to have time to forget it, I think. Whereas as you move further along in the film, the segments become closer together. They become quicker. They become um, more defined in, in their, um, their, I guess, relationship. So the, narr- the, the reason this movie holds up to being a film that people should watch and, and analyze is because of this narrative and because because it, uh, it's that horseshoe that 
hairpin thing where the bottom line is going chronologically forward and that's the black and white and the top line is uh color segments that are are uh playing in reverse like segment wise playing in reverse um and then they meet in the middle which is the 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 murder of jimmy gats gats Gats. yeah um and and uh but what's interesting is the black and white chronological stuff it starts out normal right it's a guy receiving a phone call in a hotel room that's happened a thousand in a thousand films it's happened to a lot of us in our lives and he doesn't indicate any of his memory issues at that point he's just telling a story no exactly and uh you know yeah he's having a smoke and telling a story and and uh and and but it as that hotel room stuff progresses and the paranoia starts to appear and and he starts to get more frantic and that bit like um as we laid out the earlier thing that in the real story that would be building to like a slight well like i guess a an anti-climax of the killing of jimmy um or i guess but like frantically builds up to that he kills someone and then the story almost resets and starts, starts a new over again, starts yeah. a new path and it's it's uh i guess so in that way that's why i said like the story laid out chronologically i don't think would be that interesting of a story that's why i was saying the style over the substance a little bit only because the story itself i don't think works that well i think it only work i think it works best this way yes yeah yeah no I, i i agree with you there and i think that i think that they well they they have said that they spent a lot of time preparing and figuring out what the best way to tell the story was but i think that i think that there there isn't a better way to to really get you in on what's what's happening without keeping you blind of the stuff that you need to be blind of in that way um i i like i said i couldn't find uh it to watch before and i am probably gonna sit down and watch it sometime soon just for the sake of it but i did look up some other people's discussion just on reddit and whatever about how they felt about it and it was it was kind of mixed i mean there were some people who said that uh it was really boring because it's just you get all of the information at the beginning you know everything that's going on and then you're just watching a guy who doesn't know much running around like a chicken with his head cut off for almost two hours um whereas other people found it a really creepy experience knowing what's happening and watching this this person who in in essence can't really function trying to get by and having these people circling around him that you know are bad um abusing him essentially yeah um for sure and and some really interesting uh things come out of that but one of the things i think is and why it's laid out the way it is or why it works the way it works so well the laid out the way it is is because it in the way it's structured now follows that hero's journey uh, uh the, the, the campbellian thing yes the backwards way okay because in the end which is the middle of the chronological story is when we f- f- for the first time see the character discover um what the, the all the perception issues and how the character has deceived himself and how other people have deceived the character but he he now feels like he has somewhat control over this world and he's able to manipulate the world having gone through the trials he's just gone through and that's where he literally manipulates 
the world to his, to to continue. You're you're talking about how he he forces himself to forget, right? Well, uh, he, I mean, he forces himself to forget, sure, but but he, it's not forcing him. He just will forget. So, yes. he, but he just leaves himself notes, pushing himself down a separate path, a new path, another journey. But like, so that I guess chronologically, this story would ha- would be two is two stories more or less. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't follow the same sort of proper arc of of the journey uh, as we would see stories i wanted i actually wanted to ask you about that about that memory thing at the end there because there's this interesting quandary that it kind of poses about morality there and and about his choice to because he he does he does not force himself to forget but he forces himself into a situation where he doesn't remember the important information that he needs to remember which is burning the photograph of of the guys he's killed so that he can retarget someone new and and continue that that cycle instead of allowing the uh, or trying to make the cycle end and it, it's an interesting sort of like i think he's a monster <laughs> yeah fair i i think i think everybody in this movie are bad people ex like with the maybe exception of Carrie Ann Moss and while what she does is like she does like a shocking thing in this movie it's one of the least shocking things overall that happened in the movie but it, she does like i and i remember the first time i saw this i remember being i uh, being like oh man and like this is crazy because you you believe her the first time you see her walk in the door with the beat up face you're like oh my gosh this boyfriend character has beat her up i want to uh, i'll be on the side of guy pierce while we avenge this this woman Who's been kind to him, from what we can tell. So far, all we've seen is her kindness. Yes. Um, now we. It turns out she she's manipulating him, and she and but she's clever as heck. Well, the, the segments are laid out too, so in such a way that you don't know right away that because you, you're led to believe that somebody's manipulating him. But, yeah. But we see we see her with a beat up face, and him being like, "We got to help her." And then the next one, we don't quite see the full layout, well, but we see her pulling the pens in the classic phil noir love tri- or triangle thing between uh teddy lenny and, her, and natalie um lenny is put in between is in the position of having to like choose who he believes natalie or teddy and he chooses to believe natalie so we the audience choose to believe natalie so when that moment happens and we realize she's lying it's the first time we go oh teddy might be telling the truth and then that's the first time your perception as the audience changes on Teddy, I think, I feel like. Yeah, um, I think so. But as it turns out, everyone's taking advantage of this guy and everyone's screwing him around. And um, But she's the only one who didn't do it to take... Like, she did it for selfish reasons, but not. But it was selfish reasons... Um, understandable selfish reasons. Well, they're all kind of understandable. Yeah, that's um, but I mean, what I mean to say is, hers are more like an like opportunistic. She, she's like uh, hers. This is a situation where some guy shows up to her bar wearing her driving her boyfriend's car in her boyfriend's clothes, and she knows her boyfriend's not a good person because, as Teddy describes, she helps him with the drug deals and stuff like that. So but she's, we never get a sense of what their relationship was. We no, don't know whether they were. But then, but then. When the boyfriend doesn't show up, she knows, uh-oh, that's gone bad. He had $200,000 in the trunk. Someone's going to come looking for it. It's this Dodd guy. And she's quickly able to 
like in an opportunistic way once she really gives him that test with the spit and stuff is really able to see oh i can there's a way in which i can get out of this i can save myself and so her she's her actions are the most justifiable in my head in this movie the le- like uh, Jim, the teddy being one of the neck i i well I guess technically Lenny's are the most justifiable because he doesn't remember and he seems like he's a, what used to be a very like a half decent person at the well I don't know that he was like See, that's the thing is he's that, an like, insurance guy he might have been a jerk like he could have like he seems like a nice like go, like a, that golden retriever thing you were talking about it well you didn't say that earlier but like he has this like happy innocence seemingly about him yeah, at, yeah. at times and he he throws himself down to help Natalie in situations that are extremely dangerous for him based on you know a very small amount of information well yeah and exactly and he just has to trust his instincts or whatever i guess whatever they are and and get out of these situations but yeah i don't know that he's a good person and i i don't know that anybody in this story is a good person i don't think any one of the things that i kind of bumped on a little bit was that i noticed and so i don't know if this was something that like subconsciously because i when i came back to this the first time for this podcast it had been quite a few years since i'd seen the movie and i couldn't entirely remember how it ended i knew that i knew generally what that what the ending was that it that like somebody was manipulating him but i didn't remember who and i didn't know it so so i kind of tried to come back to it with this sort of fresh eye and try to forget about that ending and i kept finding myself drawn to to teddy as being this like at least somewhat half decent person for some reason and the only thing i can think is that like he is at the end of the day he is the only one who throughout the movie has tried to help Leonard in a way. It's like, it's, but ob- he's doing it for selfish. Like he's doing it to make money. He's a dirty cop making money off of he this. Is. He is, but, but he isn't in the beginning. The first time he tries to help him, he's just trying to help him get rid of the guy. But he's also a police officer that helps a grieving, mentally unfit man track down and murder somebody i i guess i i guess i'm i phrased that wrong i'm not saying that he's a good person but i guess what i mean is that in the context of the characters in the film if you're if you're trying to figure out who is like who to trust from the perspective of of um of leonard i for some reason was like oh well you know he he like he's kind of seems like he's sort of trying to help him a little bit anyways with his own reasons on the side Whereas Natalie has no, nothing she's doing is for his benefit at all. It's only for her, but hers are like the least evil things, like the least evil goals that she's trying to achieve are, are on her side of things. But, but I think, I think I agree that I don't think there's like actually, there isn't actually a good person in the movie. There's just people trying to get on. The best person in the movie, maybe the, the sex worker he pays to like slam the bathroom door <laughs> closed because <laughs> she's just an innocent bystander in all of this. She's just like, all right, well, we'll get on with it. Well, because even like, and I know the the hotel worker guy rents him two rooms, which is taking advantage and stuff. Um, he does indicate that his boss told him to do that. Um, 
But like, yeah, he doesn't seem like a particularly good, like. I mean, I guess that's I don't true. Know. That's true. Like, he's that's generally friendly. He doesn't yeah. do a lot. He does help him. He remembers who he is. And he might be the the best character we're given in this thing. But even he, like, like I said, like they set him up to be like, oh, I've rented you two rooms and that kind of thing. Like, well, and and another, I guess another another thing too with that is that the mo- the movie is really good in its structure about about preparing you to be suspicious all the time um in the same way that it's putting you in that space of not being able to remember what's happening it's every time you meet a character they're doing something to mess with leonard yeah the first time you meet the the hotel dude he's uh he listens to his story and sort of is messing with him about like yeah he pretends he doesn't like it's the first time meeting him it's an innocent messing with him but he's still he's not being completely straight yeah it's it's yeah it's it's um yeah, it isn't like quote unquote innocent messing with them, but it would be like you know people tapping a blind guy on the shoulder or something like. Yeah, that's what somebody would say is somewhat innocent messing with, as in it's not actively hurting them, but yes. it's got to make them emotionally feel like garbage. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, it's it's innocent in comparison to murder, everything else that's going on. Yeah, but yes, um, I, but Teddy also isn't. When we first meet him, I don't think we get... Or no, he does mess with him too because he, he's calling him... Um, he calls him Lenny, which he knows he doesn't want. There's also, with Natalie... this. Well, oh, not the first one, but she spits in the drink and there's the ha-ha-ha. The guy at the bar laughs when he takes a sip and you're like, why is he laughing? And then you yeah, find yeah. out, yeah. But, e- but either way, the whole the whole first like 20 minutes of the movie even it just like they set you up to be so suspicious of everybody all the time yeah i mean she doesn't mess with them until that beer trick because she doesn't know his issue well she knows of him we find out because teddy was in the bar talking about him yeah because she's like oh that cop talked about you which i guess makes her the person who's nicest to him until you get to the later uh, acts of the movie again though that's a uh a uh, person de- like desperate mm-hmm, mm-hmm. whereas like that's why i guess i've um she's doing it for self-preservation and to be like a- and out of desperation to live to live in that or to not be really really injured yeah um whereas teddy seems to be doing it partly because he's got this like weapon he can just aim at a bad guy and send him after and then and then make some dirty money on the side yeah and make money on the side yeah so he's he's you know getting his kicks by like he can justify it to himself by going oh we're getting rid of a we're getting rid of bad people from our society um but also equally yeah uh, he's not a good person and he's and he's taking money from these people and steal so it's it's that same thing we see with movies about dirty cops is he has a justifiable, like he justifies it to himself, but he's not a good person. Um, yeah. So I get, but, uh, but I did want to say that a lot of the moments in this do follow that Campbellian hero's journey thing. Um, including like the moment when he's in bed with Carrie Ann Moss, who I didn't realize like the first couple times I watched this, um, but did start to pick up on it after that the whole she's like you can stay and then invites him to sleep in her bed knowing that when he wakes up in the morning he'll assume some intimacy with this person yeah yeah o- only to better help her with her issues or problems and stuff like that but there's that that's that 
that's that calm in the storm scene that we get in the middle of movies is that whole scene where she's looking and like touching his chest very softly. It's like these inserts on her figures rubbing across the tattoos. She also makes a big point when she goes to reveal the tattoos of at first only showing the big one, the John G raped and murdered your wife as, as though she's almost showing that to him when she opens that up. Right. Um, that whole that whole sequence. I mean, if you if you're watching it from a, a view of not really knowing where she's coming from, it seems like it could be just sort of an innocent like her getting to know what's happening thing. Yeah. But she's like clearly directing his attention to things throughout that whole that whole segment um, as far as like that tattoo. And I was I was kind of interested uh, too with with the when they are laying in bed and he's uh, Leonard sitting up and he's. He's telling the story to himself. Essentially, he's talking about, oh, you know, how do I, how do I grieve, and how do I heal if I can't feel time, which is one another big theme I think in this movie, uh, grief and 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 we can talk about that in a second. But um, she's lying there, and there's like this implication that maybe she's awake listening to him, but also she's then maybe hiding that she's awake. I don't really know how to read that but yeah i i did i did also catch that and found that interesting and then also was like i don't know what i think and then moved on yeah. and didn't really think more about it uh because i don't know what it necessarily says if, if she's listening to him say all that and then per- it just makes her more of a bad person that she proceeds with her plan after that but there is also following that when they're in the I mean, it happens before, but following chronologically when they're meeting in the diner and she's giving him the info and then she asks him to remember his wife for her like that. I, th- I feel like that that moment is almost the only moment of earnestness from anybody in the movie in a way besides Leonard. But like there there, there feels like a, a, a sense of of her trying to to vicariously experience what he is is through that interaction yeah no that's fair for sure like she seemed really connected and engaged with that which which is also part of why when we get back to those further back scenes i started thinking about about how she was interacting with him and and feeling like maybe there was something some connection there that was more than just than like there, there's I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that, but there there, se- there seemed to be like maybe she was connecting with him more than just by trying to use him, and that scene was her sort of like getting this moment of of of. Well, I I don't think you're a bartender without having a like at least a slight interest in people, especially in like a dive bar, because people are going to be talking to you all day about themselves. Yeah. Um. So I I feel like I I just felt that was you know slightly, um anthropologetic <laughs> in that she's like uh she's uh you know she's looking at it like for the she's curious about this the situation more than about him yeah yeah okay i think yeah maybe, maybe that's fair maybe that's fair maybe i was reading too much into it but i just it was it was it was either way it was kind of an interesting relationship there but on that grief thing because yeah it's uh, to come back to that for a sec i was i was uh i i felt like a lot of the the structure about outside of just dealing with memory is is this conversation about about dealing with grief and and figuring out how to how to 
come to terms again and and you know in a way that the his arc of trying to get revenge and over and over and over again is just becomes kind of an analogy for his attempt to to heal and every uh, in in a sense everybody's attempt to heal from grief but like we're, we're getting this sort of this cycle of of feeling that pain and then trying to be okay with it and get over it and then having to do it all over again i guess yeah, in the same way that I said most earlier that most of his films deal with perception, and uh, I'm right about that. They all, and as you've now pointed out, deal with grief. Uh, Batman has lost his parents. The Joker makes Batman choose between the politician or the girlfriend. Um, the And then deal with the grief that comes from that whole incident. And then... Um, the grief of like i guess your self-grief in almost dying in the third movie is all about kind of all about the terms with death in general and 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 also but like being able to move past traumatic incidents in your life i guess overcoming trauma and i mean interstellar is is a lot of grief about loss of family as well yeah uh I, i i don't know i just thematically he seems to deal with grief a lot like well inception is entirely about grief yeah that's true that's like all about the uh wife and everything and how she's locked in his own head he can't get away from her he he's uh clearly like he like he likes that extreme like he likes that extreme emotion of like so love is an extreme emotion and then love torn away is is the inverse of that i guess so he he seems to have a lot of dead wives, dead girlfriends, dead dead significant others in movies. Uh, uh, but as for this movie's uh, dealing with grief, I, he's trying to be action oriented in his grief, but that's not what grief requires. That's not how. Well, that's not how you get over. Like that's not how you move past. That's not how you gr- shouldn't. It's not a healthy way to grieve. Revenge is not the uh, revenge and or uh, vengeance. I guess the same vengeance of any sort on on a situation or a person that has caused you this grief um, doesn't solve the problems. And and I think that that's made clear kind of in him the fact that he gets it and then forgets it. He's got this great speech to Natalie about how. Um, it doesn't matter if he remembers because the point of, the point is is that she deserves it, I guess, and that like he's that that the world doesn't uh, stop moving when you close your eyes, and that he's still making some impact even though he doesn't remember it having been done. But yet, that impact, whatever that might be, seems to be irrelevant at the end because he continues to do it, and he continues to forget, and he continues to let himself forget despite that and there's no, nothing seems to come of it except just more violent acts yeah which i think i well and i think is that's a like an analogy to the great, greater trauma greater grief is that if you don't deal with it it slowly builds and then like moments of violence or moments of extreme uh emotion occur um I, the other thing i wanted to say about whether he's a good guy in a bad situation, like being manipulated yeah. into bad situations or not is I don't know what level of memory loss I would have to take that just through some verbal pokes for about five minutes would cause me to punch a woman in the face, especially one who I thought I might be intimate 
like with or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, I mean, I, I don't at this point in my life, I don't think I would there'd be many people that could make me punch them in the face at all using just words. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I don't know that he's necessarily like I, I think that's another scene that shows perhaps Lenny's not wasn't always a great guy. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I guess it also is kind of implied with his dealing with Sammy where like until we realize at the end that the full story is actually his story. The story of Sammy is that somebody has is clearly suffering from memory loss and this friendly neighborhood insurance investigator manages to get the insurance company out of having to pay for this actual family's actual problems uh, well and then brushes it off as like well i never said he was faking it. yeah yeah that's that's the thing he keeps he he has this refrain that he keeps returning to that he's like i didn't say he was faking i said it wasn't physical it's not my fault that all of this happened yeah exactly which almost seems kind of like a refrain on the reason he's craft he's crafted this whole thing in the first place which is that he he can't deal with the fact that his wife uh, is dead because of him and yeah. that he, he, the guilt that he feels which he talks about kind of right at the beginning you you feel guilty and you don't know why or is that wait is that closer to anyways he's saying it on the phone he says you feel guilty and you don't know why and and there's this sort of like you know this refrain that it seems he's running from that and trying to get that guilt off his shoulders but doesn't know how to right yeah no and and uh it's the whole as far as his like dealings with, with uh, like with the group, because that's the other thing is I'm not like I guess for me I've still like to this day I still don't know if exact like because what you've said has thrown doubt into my mind about so if Sammy Jenkins was a real person that he really investigated and really had an issue but didn't have a wife, then he seems to be carrying guilt about that situation as well. But I don't know what the guilt is about that situation. Also, like insurance claims investigators aren't necessarily like I wouldn't call them a good guy in many stories. And there's a bit of there might be a bit of an irony to someone who looks at someone's whole life and future and determines things about them. Like, uh, okay, up to this point, you know, you smoked and blah, blah, blah. So therefore, we can only provide this much coverage because of future complications we expect you to have and all that kind of thing and someone someone who has that who has a job that is a broad outlook job who now only can see 10 minutes at a time kind of is kind of an interesting irony um but also to him being being an insurance adjuster or investigator they're generally the people they because they work on behalf of the insurance company their job is to their, not have their job is pay, to yeah. screw people out of paying the paying desperate people for getting the money that they've paid into the insurance company yeah it's yeah. uh it doesn't really leave him in a very morally positive light anyways uh, there, there's also the the point that he 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 sets up right away he says he was a good he was good at his job and his job was coming to people that he he didn't know anything about and in a short conversation determining everything about them about their life about what their intentions are whether they're lying whether they're telling the truth and to and weighing like you said a really important sum of money on on this reading and yet there's also an irony in the fact that he is then being 
taken advantage of by two people who are both able to lie to him very effectively um, despite all of his training and all of his insistence of being really good at it or maybe because of it because he thinks he's good at it but now yeah the and I, context it, it, the latter is more the way i would i would think of it because he had that he has that air he had that arrogance to think that like through a five minute conversation with someone he can determine whether they're claim they're legitimate or or not and uh and I, I call it arrogance because I think you have to be arrogant to be to be able to, to assume that like you can get the read and understand someone completely by a five minute conversation with them. It kind of goes to that perception thing of again, with like oh well you just you know he should Sammy should be able to create memories. Uh, so the fact that he can't like obviously you know, he, he, something's up, but that's putting, again, putting yourself in, in his perception and, and assuming how the experience works. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I just, it's just, uh, there's a lot of layers to all of it when you start getting into the layer, the, the layer, and which is why I, I, again, like I said, I think the crafting of this movie is very, was done in a very intelligent way. Yeah. So I think we're, we're getting, we're getting on in this one. So, uh, it's probably time if you've got any final final thoughts on on the movie and on on the experience of it that you want to bring up now well i have a couple things um first was uh just with the actors and everything we had talked about there there was a lot of other uh actors up for different roles uh but one of the ones i found interesting is for the lenny role uh two actors were i think fully attached and then left for the projects for different reasons one was Brad Pitt. Really? And when he left, um, so he was the one, he was attached to it when they were trying to get financing and stuff. Um, and then he had to drop out because it just wasn't going to work with his schedule or whatever. And when he dropped out, Christopher Nolan apparently said um, that he didn't want to cast an A-list actor um, because they would take too much of a percentage of the overall budget. Right. And since this was such a low budget movie, he wanted to be able to spread that budget out more evenly to all, to a get better actors in every role than having one great actor. And then maybe having to get a bunch of, if you luck out great actors, but using less, um, people who would demand less money potentially getting right. getting lesser actors in some of those supporting roles. So, um, but then when he left, the next person that they attached to the movie was Aaron Eckhart, um, who oh. he would later go on to play Harvey Dent in, uh, for, for Chris Nolan. Wow. Um, but I could also see him working in this role. He has that kind of, um, well, I mean, he's kind of got a film noir face anyway. <laughs> the, like, yeah, like, like the, the hard edges and the strong jaw. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so does Guy Pierce. Yeah. And so, and then they landed on Guy Pierce. And then there, I heard a few other people that were up for the Carrie Ann Moss one, but it was slightly less interest. Mary McCormick and some other great actresses. But um, so that's the first thing I had to say. And then the second thing was I forgot to bring it up when we were talking at the top of the podcast. Just had you had mentioned the color grade, so if you haven't seen this movie, <laughs> uh, we've spoiled it terribly. But also, <laughs> it um, it plays so it had plays chunks in black and white and chunks in color. The chunks in color are um, cut up scenes that play that fall into the film narratively backwards. 
um, but they play forwards. <laughs> and the black and white. And the being... black ones chronologically play forward, um, and they are the first half of the overall story, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then, but uh, we we discussed how interesting that color grade is, and he just did black and white to color, which is um, was a really good definitive line. It it makes both of them stand out. It really defines where you are, which is interesting because the movie tries really hard to obscure when you are, where you are, what's going on, except in that instance. Well, but he said, except for that towards the end of the film, he said they started presenting some things in black and white that had previously been in color and stuff that's in color previously in black and white. I guess I kind of... We see that truck pull up in black and white, but we've also seen it pull up in color. Oh, right. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that kind of thing. So anyway. it, it feels like the, they're kind of, as you get to the end, those two so different timelines blend as the, a bit. As, as we get to the turn of the hairpin, the they really start to, he tries to try to blend the two more and more and more. Well, and he talks too about the ob- objective and subjective viewing experiences and how um, as the movie progresses, the the movie switches slowly which ones are on which hand of the story as well yeah interesting um, interesting and the, uh, um i think though we do just thinking about it towards the end i think one of the flashbacks to the bathroom incident plays in black and white or at least chunks of it are in black and white yeah and there are some that play in color as right, well exactly which in my head was just part of which segment it was in because there are flashbacks when he's in the hotel room in black and white and those I thought were in black and white and then there's the ones in color and those are in color. But the flashbacks when he's in the black and white, generally he only, the times we see him flashback to his wife aren't in the black and white. That's in the color and so like it like it joins the scene, we cut to it. Yeah. Or it's just flashes of the the curtain uh the shower curtain around her face and him hitting the floor or whatever yeah um but i i I did want to point out that like in film history the use of color to to delineate different um times or different places gets used a lot or not gets used a lot but has been used it's a it's a it's a known technique it wasn't brand new to this yeah so uh, like a big example right around the time this movie came out was traffic the steven soderbergh film which takes place it's about drug trafficking and it takes place in the united states and it takes place in mexico and mexico was very he uses like very warm light warm colors and in in the United States, he uses very cool blues and that kind of thing. So one's kind of got a gold and yellow hue to it, and the other's got, or like more on the orangey yet side. The other one's got like the ultraviolets and the blues and that kind of thing. And um, so that he divided things like that, and then going way back to almost I think the second or third ever feature length film um, was the D.W. Griffith follow up to Birth of a Nation, which was called Intolerance which was all about um, <laughs> slaves and the intolerance to them. And, and, it was sort and of a, on a kind of apology. It was, spo- it was yeah. supposed to be like the way I was taught in film school is that it was his apology, realizing what he had done with Birth yeah. of a Nation. Um, and that plays, from my memory, it plays in, th- there's three, so th- that's obviously time before color film. It's all black and white silent. But film. they tinted the black and white film. So there's uh, the pharaohs in Egypt. I play. I think play in like a greeny color, maybe a blue color. 
I think that I think he uses RGB. I think yeah, he three, does. Yeah. So it's green, red, and blue. I think is how he tints the film in that in that film yeah. to delineate where and time, and because we bounce between ancient Egypt and I think the modern South. I think in that movie. Yeah, and I and I think there's there's now I haven't watched the whole thing myself, but I think there's there's that color, and then within modern there's the switch between different colors in the like quote unquote modern time of when the movie was made. Um, which I, is meant to also sort of like imbue what sort of emotion is taking place in that scene, like the red and blue balancing of right of that as well. So it's it's a technique that's been used in a variety of different ways. Um, I, I I I don't know that it has much greater significance to this one other than just being. I mean, it does two things: it separates the timelines and it gives the film a bit more of that noir feeling because it is meant to be a neo-noir movie uh and it sort of adds to that sense of it but i don't know that there's much else that it really does beyond that unless you read anything into it but um not no not 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 really other than i think yeah it evokes the noir stuff which um a lot of the directors seem to pick noir as the the genre, their first genre film that they do. They pick a noir or neo noir, like because noirs are cheap to make. Well, yes, and I, I mean that's ex- literally how they the lighting style of noir came about because they had no money, so they could only use single like a single source and would get <laughs> like um, super hard contrast. Yeah, exactly, things like that. But like, yeah, but off the top of my head, I can think of the Wachowski siblings, sisters, I believe now. Bound was one of their first movies, and that's a neo-noir. Mm. It's like a, it's a neo-noir, but instead of like grizzled dudes, it's, um, it's two lesbians with a, like the love triangle is a, there's a dude in there. You know what? I'm um, surprised I haven't seen this. I'm going to have to watch that. So it, it's a strong film. Uh, Ryan Johnson did uh, Brick. He did this. Uh, Pie. Uh, Aronofsky. Aaron Aronofsky. Darren Aronofsky. So that's yeah. kind of a that's kind of a, a noir feel feel to that black movie. And white, all that jazz. Yeah. So like uh, like around this time, like it just seems to be the genre that a lot of people pick for one of their first films when they do a genre thing. And there's a lot of reasons, but I think it's because uh, you can have a little bit of light moments, but for the most part, it's pretty dark and it's pretty like emotional and gritty and all the things and the and it explores the depths of of humanity, which is it, it's it's something that's that's interesting. It feels like you can craft it well with little money and make it feel just not amateurish uh, or or low budget. Um, and gives you gives you a, a bit of a playground for for how to how to take it. So yeah, it's a, it's a good a good choice, anyways. And so yeah, and the, and this movie, I think you know this the way they present Carrie Ann Moss, and especially because one of the first times we see her is in the cafe, and she has those glasses on, very femme fatale like classic look. Although she's you know sometimes they were presented in flowy dresses and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But the the glasses as a like a layer of deception, something there and that kind of thing and uh, i just i just i enjoyed i enjoyed this film for what it was and yeah narratively speaking um while i don't like i've i've expressed i don't know that the story is the strongest story in the world i think the way it was presented to us was one of the strongest presentations of this story and um i i really enjoyed this film yeah yeah i I agree I, i think maybe that's what makes this one a bit more of a short and um 
erratic episode a little bit is that we are we tend to talk a lot more about story than we do anything else and this one not to say that it's necessarily always the nolan style but i mean it's there's a lot of really really cool stuff that they do with how the story is told but not as much to get into with the exploration of what the story tells all the time there, there there's a lot there, there but yeah but it's it's a little more yeah and we we usually yeah we do usually talk more story structure and this one we talked or not uh, we usually talk more story and this time we talked more story structure and uh there was some things though with like film editing also we didn't we mentioned the oscar nomination and we talked a bit about the how they structured this film but there was some cool little moments that they put in there. Well, I, I read in an article for this that, first of all, some of the overlaps are different takes. Oh, so that So that when you see the footage that match the other footage, it doesn't quite match the other footage. So oh. even your memory as a viewer betrays you. I didn't because catch that. You, neither did I. But I, I read that they used that, which I thought when directors do that type of stuff sometimes it only works works subconsciously but it mm -hmm. still works and it uh, builds that that whole feeling the other thing was um so when he finishes his telling the story of jenkins oh sammy jenkins sammy jenkins Jen why can't that that name <laughs> wouldn't leave my head last night but remember now, sammy jenkins uh, so when when he tells the fi the final part of the story of Sammy Jenkins, it's when he uh, shows him in a home, uh, um, a mental institution, and an orderly walks by Stephen Toblowski, and as the order orderly passes by him, he then reveals Guy Pierce sitting in the same position for like in the chair. three frames. I yeah, think. It's, it's very super quickly. fast. And then the other the other thing that he, they do is he flashes back after he tells that story. He instantly flashes back to a time where he's lying in bed with his wife. Yes. But he has the tattoos on his chest. So he knows it's some sort of dream. And also on his on the part where he's leaving the hole so that he can tattoo when he accomplishes the deed. It says I did it or something to the like it has the the tattoo claiming he he. He did it. Oh, he killed her. I missed that too, man. So the, those were two little editing choices that I thought they made that I thought were really interesting to tell the audience, like, oh no, no, like that whole th those two characters are definitely linked and are. I still think the same person. You still think there really was a <laughs> a character who just doesn't quite fit the the Let same. Let us know thing. what you think, but yeah. I th I think I'm right. Yeah, you probably are. I just <laughs> I, I didn't get that read, and um and because of these other little things, I've always thought they were just. And maybe it's because of like Fight Club came out around the same time as this. Oh right. So two yeah. characters being one character was very much on my mind, and I've stuck with that ever since. Uh, another movie with twisty ending. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And kind of a film noir, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Arguably, <laughs> it is. <laughs> that that whole and revival era in the two thousands. Yeah, the neo noir, -noir revival, like because noir ended kind of at the end of the seventies. There, there's a thirty year cycle that goes with these things. It's yeah. been well documented, it, regardless of what the trend is, whether well, it's movies, yeah. whether it's fashion. There's an approximate 30-year cycle where the culture and style and interests of 30 years ago comes back right. around that. Yeah, time. which is why the 90s was a repeat of the 60s. Yeah. We, yeah. Um, 
I remember in school when we studied film noir, I had a professor and they might have just been a big, big Billy Wilder fan, but he always claims that true film noir falls between Devil Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard and everything outside of that is not noir. Uh, some people say it's Maltese Falcon is the first one. Um, I would Which agree. was taught I in would, a film class as a, I, as a neo-noir, as and, a noir movie. And so I would agree. I yeah. agree based on I've seen it. I own it. It is film noir. Um, but it start like, Anyways, but I've always liked that because I'm a big Billy Wilder guy. Yeah, yeah. I love that uh, <laughs> bookends of Billy. But yeah, so th- this movie uh, fits well into, like, because I love film noir, it fits well to a lot of, like, the aesthetics I like in film. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. All um, right. So, uh, is this a film that you would rewatch? Is this a film you'd revisit from time to time? Uh, y- yeah, oh yeah, 100%. I, um, I mean, so... First of all, there's the thing with, like, I watched it, you know, when I was in high school or just after, probably just after, um, and then now, like, however long, I don't even know what the time gap between the last time I saw it and now is, but there was a big gap there, and, and those big gaps make it hard sometimes to pick up on the, the nuances, so, I mean, a, a part of me is, like, when you when you sit down to watch this, I would recommend watching it a couple of times in a shorter period of time if you want to really get into... Um, what there is to get into with it but overall i think regardless it's generally rewatchable yeah based on my life experience it's like i would say it's a must rewatch when you've watched if you've watched if it's the first time you've watched it it's a must rewatch or if you've only ever seen it once it's a must rewatch i don't know that it's a wa- movie that i'm going to revisit many more times in my life i don't know that i would have ever watched it again had we not done it for this podcast yeah i it it also is a movie that still lives like it lives in my brain like when i watched this movie like i said i haven't seen it in 15 years but i i remembered every scene almost as they were playing i remembered there's very little that like caught me off guard and i have a decent memory but usually if it's been 10 years on something i will have forgotten some bit when we watch master and commander there was a lot of that that i had forgotten yeah, when yeah, i when yeah. we revisited it um but this movie was all it's it was all in there so whatever whatever that makes means about his the filmmaking process and christopher nolan uh it left an indelible memory in my brain that i i was able to access again watching this um so yes it is a rewatchable film but i don't know that it's like a a revisit every few years or anything that's yeah. that's probably more of a personal thing for me no maybe for ryan yes i i don't i don't no, I think I'm on the same page. I think like I've watched it a few times and having part of the reason I brought it on for the show was because I wanted another reason to go back to it again. Um, and I think I've gone back to it enough that I don't know if I would come back to it again after all this. But I, I think that it, it is one that you can't just watch once. I think specifically if you're like a, a person interested in film and film construction and, and, and work making your own films, this is a movie you should you should see probably. Yeah. Uh, so is the is, do you need to be in a mood to watch this movie, or do do you find you need to be in a mood to watch this movie? Uh, I don't really think so. No, I thought it was it was pretty accessible. You got to be ready to pay attention is the one thing, uh, because of the construction of it. And now this could just be me. I'm sure that other people had an easier time, but I I still find that watching it through, I trying to keep like I'll keep keep things in mind and whatever. But like you got to pay attention to keep the structure in your head. A little bit more and it's so it's not something you can throw on and sort of half watch unless you really 
don't care to not pay attention to it, but then why are you throwing it on, I suppose? So it's it's got to be a point where you're intending to sit down and actually watch it. Yeah, I would say the same. I would say that it can't be, you can't throw this on on a busy evening where you're in and out of the room doing whatever, or like you need to sit down and watch the film if you're going to watch it. Um, and for that reason, I think you have to be in a mood for kind of a bit of a whodunit and a, yeah. uh, and that kind of thing. You kind of have to be in a, and I, I, for me, that's a particular mood. <laughs> mood <laughs> fair enough i'm in yeah. a whodunit mood i guess um yeah so uh so yeah i think you do have to be in a certain type of mood to watch this and it just yeah and it's one in which you can give it the necessary attention it needs to be the movie it it is yeah yeah, yeah. um w- what about seeking this out would you tell someone to seek this out would this be a movie that that if it's not easily uh accessible uh, which for me in Canada it was on Amazon Prime. Um, would you would you tell someone to seek it out pretty easy or uh, with some like put some work into seeking it out? I mean, I, I think that that one's a person to person basis. I think that if you're someone who likes Nolan's movies and you haven't seen this one yet, I would I would definitely say you should watch it. You should seek it out. Um, I think if you're a person that uh, is interested in storytelling and in structure of story and in in movies that are not just a typical easy to watch narrative then you should definitely seek it out but i think there's there's a type of person out there that doesn't want to have to work super hard for their movies and in that case i would say probably not yeah so um yeah if you like if you like film film craft filmmaking i think this is a movie you should seek out i i don't know that this is um, if you aren't that interested in film and narrative and that kind of thing, then this isn't a movie for you. Um, because I don't think it, I really don't, like I said, I've expressed a couple times. I'm not sure that there's much outside of the film craft in this film. I think there's, uh, well, I think there's some things explored that are interesting. I just don't know that it makes any, it, uh, I don't know that it makes any interesting, I guess it makes some interesting comments about uh, about memory and perception and that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, I was going to say I, something for me that I I definitely find myself thinking about a lot is its discussion of memory and and it it definitely gets me thinking in that regard. It has stuff to say about it. It it makes me ponder and and consider how my life is structured. So like in that regard, I kind of connect or or it brings me around to think about my own ways of existing in the world that are interesting but that that's also something that's a little bit more yeah introspective perhaps no and i like thought that like i like things that make me think and and cause cause thought-provoking moments like that and and definitely the idea of perception and 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 self-deception is very interesting and this is a great uh movie that that does a great job uh analogizing that but but um but yeah, so I do think this is a movie you should seek out. Is the yeah, yeah. is the overall thing? But uh, uh, yeah, I'm. It's again subjective. Yeah. Uh. So, but how would you rate this movie? You know, it honestly it feels like it kind of feels like a three Jaguars sort of movie to me. Okay. Okay. Three Jaguar movie. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, you're not a whole a whole dealership of Jaguars or anything, right. but like you know, significant. Yeah, three showroom Collection. nice cars. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, for me, uh, I'm going to go with just one big kind of leader size 
beer stein, but with like 17 spits in it. <laughs> uh, and, in, and in this world, that's good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you probably wouldn't even notice unless you knew they were there at that rate. Like that percentage, parts per million kind of wise. Yeah, You're not yeah, looking yeah. super, yeah. <laughs> uh, well... As always, there are spoilers in this episode, so if you haven't seen the movie, you should watch it before you check this out. And you really should, because spoilers will probably wreck your experience of it. You can find us on Instagram at Cinematics Podcast or on Twitter at Cinematics Cast. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you enjoy the show, giving us a five-star review would be super helpful, both for us and for yourselves, for us to continue to put out content of the variety that you like. Um, so until next time, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.